As we begin, I acknowledge the traditional owners of this land. I thank the elders past and present for caring for the land we are now privileged to call home. I'm delighted that so many of you have joined us today to hear from one of Australia's best-selling authors. Tim Winton is one of Australia's most acclaimed writers, thinkers and essayists. He's the author of 28 books and three plays. His non-fiction has appeared in the New York Times, Granta, The Monthly, The New Statesman, Prospect, The Los Angeles Times, The London Review of Books and The Economist Intelligent Life. Since his first novel, An Open Swimmer, won the Australian Vogel Award in 1981, he's won the Miles Franklin Award four times for Shallows, Cloud Street, Dirt Music and Breath. And he's twice been shortlisted for the Booker Prize for The Riders and Dirt Music. May this year marks the 25th anniversary of Tim Winton's publication, Cloud Street, which has been noted as one of the most renowned pieces of Australian literature. I think that's me ringing there. So um, when I sit down, I'll turn it off and I invite all of you to do the same so that you don't start blushing as well. So I think we're at the 25th anniversary of Tim Winton's um, Cloud Street and I just want to say that the, um, the audio book of Cloud Street is one of the best audio books you will ever, ever hear. So um, if you're not into audio books, start with Cloud Street. Tim began transferring his personal papers to the National Library in the 1990s. Last year, he transferred another large consignment of his papers and the library now holds 104 boxes of his material. This is quite a large literary archive. The material has been very generously donated to the library through the Australian Government's Cultural Gifts Program. Now, Tim's papers are something of an archivist's dream. They are beautifully organised and managed and they reflect a meticulous approach to the discipline of writing. Each new work begins with a neat handwritten draft and it looks as though the words flow straight out of his brain and onto the page ready formed. And the subsequent typescripts and proofs show the evolution of each text right through to publication. The library is enormously grateful for the privilege of being the custodian of Tim's papers and his generosity in donating the material will surely continue to grow in value and significance. We hope that this relationship will continue over many more years as he continues to engage readers with his remarkable literary output. Now, joining Tim this afternoon is Andrea Ho, the Editorial and Operational Manager for 666 ABC, Canberra's local radio. Andrea has been working in radio all over Australia for more than 20 years, having been bitten by the radio bug at a student station in her university days. In 2015, she was awarded a fellowship uh, with the Winston Churchill Memorial Trust, and she's going to use this to investigate practical strategies for improving cultural diversity in broadcast media. Now, please make welcome to the stage, Tim Winton and Andrea Ho. Tim. <laughs> I've never seen no the kidding. audience so full here before. I'm not going to have a lot to say today because uh, our guest today, Tim Winton, is the person that you want to hear from. And uh, it really is a great privilege to have him here in Canberra. Uh, I'm sure that all of you have read many of his books, but this particular book, if you haven't had a chance to read it, although I'm sure some of you have, I saw somebody uh, reading about a third of the way through just outside on the stairs as I walked in this morning. I thought, oh, somebody who knows probably even more than I do. Um, but uh, this book is an opportunity for you to have an insight into Tim as a person as opposed to his characters. And uh, for me, it was the opportunity to see where those characters come from. I mean, where, where do they come from? So today, I think it would be lovely to hear from Tim about his own life. And perhaps we should kick off this morning by having you read a little of the book for the people who haven't had the chance yet. Something from the opening chapter, maybe. Okay, no worries. Uh, <clears throat> Thanks for coming, by the way. <laughs> it's, uh, it would have been even more awkward being here 
if uh, there was nobody here, it's pretty awkward with you here as it is, but uh, it would have been <laughs> a little more strange and awkward uh, in an empty room, reading to oneself. <laughs> Again. <laughs> um, oh, I'm reading from the proofs, aren't I? Okay. Um, originally, this, uh, this essay began with a quote from a... Uh, a songwriter whose work I, I really liked. Um, uh, he um, he had a little problem with uh, heroin, so uh, his his health deteriorated to the to the extent that he became a posthumous um, phenomenon. Um, his name was Chris Whitley, uh, um, and uh, originally I began the quote with these lines: "In the hours after washing, I do my dreaming." with a gun uh, and I asked uh, I think it was CBS or Warner Brothers uh, who, um, whoever, whoever owned the, the rights um, and they said yes you can use that no problem that'll be 3,000 American dollars <laughs> so I told them to get fucked and uh, <laughs> so, um, greedy pricks I mean he can't, even get, he can't even get the benefit of the money you know wouldn't, wouldn't mind anyway so that's not in the book so, uh, <laughs> um, and yet I managed to utter it. It didn't cost me a cent, you know. <laughs> and in a minute, I'm going to sing Kookaburra Sits on the Old Gum Tree <laughs> and get off scot-free with that one as well. So, anybody got any other suggestions? We'll work it up. <laughs> when I was a kid, I liked to stand at the window with a rifle and aim it at people. I hid behind the terraline curtain in my parents' bedroom with the 22. And whenever anybody approached, I drew a bead on them. I held them in the weapon's sight until they passed by. They had no idea I was lurking there, 13 years old, armed and watchful. And that was the best part of it. The family rifle was a single-shot 22 Lithgow. When the old man first acquired it, having swapped it for a fishing rod... It was already a rather homely-looking pea-shooter, but after he gave its battered stock a generous coat of Mission Brown, he rendered it genuinely ugly. Dad had a great passion for Mission Brown, uh, in gloss. Uh, I think he must have had a 44-gallon drum of it that it rolled off the back of um, some truck somewhere. But um, what he didn't paint, Mission Brown, just uh, didn't count, obviously. So it was ugly, even... But even so, I, I couldn't get enough of it. I loved to be out with him on brisk evenings, hunting rabbits or whistling up a fox. Some Sunday afternoons, I was given five or six bullets and entrusted to roam at liberty in the lonelier paddocks of local farms. This is a big deal, a privilege earned from months of training and supervision during which the dogma of firearms safety was drilled into me. I knew all about the folly of climbing through fences with a weapon, likewise the dangers of ricochet near water. I understood trajectory, the effects of wind and the perils of firing into vegetation that could obscure livestock or the occasional unsuspecting hiker. <laughs> I observed the sanctity of the safety catch. I never walked with the rifle cocked, nor would I travel even the shortest distance in a vehicle with a round in the breech. And once the shooting was over, I knew how to render the weapon safe, to clear the breach and check twice in a manner both ritualistic and pedantic. Often enough on these solo excursions, I came back without having fired a shot. True, the rabbits were skittish and the foxes wily. But there were moments when having got the drop on something, I just couldn't bring myself to pull the trigger. Not that I was squeamish. I'd killed snakes, birds and roos with hardly a thought. And it didn't have to be a creature in my sight. Sometimes I couldn't even let loose at a rusty tin because I was stricken by the very idea of the rifle, its eerie potential and authority, cowed by the sinister power of the thing and burdened by the weight of responsibility that came with it. Now, the Lithgow was no blunderbuss. It made a noise like a damp Christmas cracker and it lacked the slick glamour of the Winchester repeater 
that Chuck Connors made famous in the TV show The Rifleman. Anyone remember that? You're old enough? Or the Tommy gun that Vic Morrow toted so nonchalantly in combat, exclamation mark. For some reason, uh, combat on the telly had to be combat, exclamation mark, as if <laughs> war in itself wasn't an, an urgent enterprise. <laughs> All the same, our family gun was a killer. I'd destroyed enough things and creatures with it to know that. Some Sundays it was enough just to cradle death in your hands and hold fire. I was appalled by its atavistic potency, yet I was entirely in its thrall. At our place during the 70s, in the days before mandatory gun safes, the Lithgow lived at the back of my parents' wardrobe, behind a thicket of jackets and ties and police tunics. The bolt, that's the rifle's firing mechanism, was kept separately in the drawer on my father's side of the bed, right next to the envelopes for the church collection. And lying snug against it were packs of antacids as big and orange as shotgun cartridges. Anyone remember quickies? Um, in the cut glass jars on the dressing table, salted in with the old man's uniform buttons and old coins, were a few tarnished rounds of ammunition, 22 shorts and longs, the odd hollow point, perhaps a 38. None of this was a secret. My parents understood that I knew it was all there, but I was not allowed to touch any of it. Handling the rifle indoors without adult supervision was forbidden. This is a fundamental rule. Of course, there were worse sins like pointing a gun at another person. That was completely unthinkable. The action of a dangerous fool or a crim in the family parlance. I saw the sense in all these regulations and mores and I accepted them without reservation. I would have been disgusted by someone who flouted them. And yet, at 13, whenever I had the house to myself, I went straight to the wardrobe and I drew the rifle out. I handled it soberly with appropriate awe, which was a respect laced with fear. But then I carried it to the window and I aimed it at innocent passers-by. This didn't happen only a time or two. I did it for months. I stood behind the filmy curtain, alert and alone, looking down the barrel of a gun at strangers. What a creepy little boy I was. Go on, you're going to say it, you know. Took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> I think, I think, in fact, the way you described yourself later was as in an intense little boy. Uh, and I have to say, after reading that passage, I thought twice about having said yes to it. <laughs> so I, it seems all right now. You I mean, right it's, a bit, it's not, not made any easier by being confronted by a childhood photograph on the cover. And there's me on, on the back of my dad's BSA. My brother's on the front. Dad's in his leathers and his aviators. And um, there's me clutching onto the back of the old man with this look of... I mean, either it was anxiety or constipation, I'm not sure. But uh, Well, you said you weren't very fond of speed. Your father had a, uh, no, a passion for it, but you weren't. No. But you enjoyed the rifle. I mean, to me, as a woman, this is very interesting, the insight into a 13-year-old boy's mind. Mm. Are all 13-year-old boys like this? Was it just you? No, I, don't. I, I mean, I think, you know, luck, luckily m most Australians don't get contact with a, mm. uh, a firearm. But if you live in the country or if... Uh, you come from a family where, you know, firearms are in use or um, um, in one way or another, um, then I think that's not an uncommon... I don't know if everyone did what I did, but I think the, the emotional space, if we want to dignify what I was up to there as, a, as an emotional space, um, was v is very familiar. And I think... Part of what was going on there for me, and it's taken me years to realise that, um, is that I, I, I just moved to a new town, um, you know, we, where we'd been sent. We hadn't chosen to move to Albany in Western Australia from Perth. I was about to go to high school. I just didn't know anybody. Everything was wrong. You know, we, we'd, we'd moved south and the weather was wrong. The vegetation just didn't seem proper. Um... I, it felt like we were aliens come to somewhere that didn't want us. And um, for about six months, I think I was I was lonely and I was anxious and I was sort of defending 
myself and my family in some weird way from the outside world. And the real problem, I think, and it goes back, you know, it goes beyond me, it's a thing that I see in, in young people and, and young men are afflicted by it, is you're full of this turmoil of emotion. Um, you know, what with the old puberty um, knocking on the door, um, or on your underpants in our case. <laughs> uh, um, but there's a point you haven't got a language for, for all your feelings. And I think that was the thing. The rifle was a sort of default language, you know, an inappropriate, or not inappropriate, an insufficient language. And I think probably, you know, some of the roots of misogyny are just are in, 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 in the violent behaviour of men and the mulish behaviour of men is they don't, you know, we don't, there's no kind of pathway, no ritualistic pathway toward expression of, of, of our feelings. And um, so this suppressed rage is, is, you know, it's dangerous, particularly if, you know, those many men who never, never grow beyond that slightly infantile state of anxiety and machismo. You know, the, the emotional infancy of men is a, you know, is a big problem. And it seems like there's a circular, obsessive aspect to it too. You broke out of that, but you comment on the fact that that's not possible for everybody. Um, the obsession seems to also translate into obsessions with objects, you know, the gun as an object. You talk a lot about objects in this book, mm. uh, and it seems as though for some people, objects are very powerful things. What do they mean to you? Um, well, you know, different objects mean different things, but it, it, in, a, in a general sense, I think I, uh, I, I think I somehow instinctively knew that the material world um, was meaningful in itself. Um, again, it took me a long time to find a language for that, and I was, I was raised in a, um, a religious tradition which was, you know, we had our high, eyes on higher things, um, and and the physical world wasn't that important. It was all just backdrop to our our um, our moral journey, um, and in a way, even though that's not mainstream thinking uh, in, in Australia. Um, we still have fallen into an idea where um, we're not part of nature and the material world is grist. You know, it's just the stuff that we use or it's this background, we don't notice it. Um, so I, I, I somehow think that as a little boy, without having read um, the nature mystics, you know, the Christian nature mystics and the Asian nature mystics and... St. Francis and all, all, all of that. I certainly never read William Blake, but I, I somehow sensed that, the, that there was value in the organic world, in things. Um, but to go back to the original thing about objects, objects sort of, um, particularly if they're, f if they're associated with um, events and emotions, they, they, they get this kind of sacramental value, you know. So there's a lot of things I'm not sentimental about, but there are some things that I... Um, that I am sentimental about, you know. I've still got the desk. I've, st I've still got the desk that I started writing on, you know. Um, the, you know, the, the desk I wrote, An Open Swimmer, in my earliest stories, um, I still use it, you know. It's a piece of crap, you know. And, uh, and that, emotional, that emotional attachment is really interesting. It's like yeah. your grandparents' car. Yeah. Which you talk about again in the book. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, that, was a, that was a car I loathed, you know. Um, you know, I, th I think there was a car in my adolescence, so I, I think it delayed the onset of puberty. I hated it <laughs> so much, you know. What was it? It, it was, was a, a 1954 Hillman Minx. <laughs> and it was a disgrace to civilization. It really was. <laughs> it was like, it was like, it, I mean, because it was actually, it wasn't ours originally. It was, um, it was my, my grandfather's. I had four, like, unlike, you know, like most people, I had four grandparents. Um, but only one of them ever drove a car, and uh, he was a he was a bit of an eccentric. My pop, his name was Les, um, and he always liked you know eccentric forms of transport. Um, for some years, he uh, he had a Harley with a sidecar, and the sidecar was as big as a, sort of the gondola of a Zeppelin. <laughs> um, you could fit the entire family. They had seven kids. They take they go camping in it, you know. You could, it's like a you, could get, you could get all the kids in and on it, uh, the tent, 
the rifles, the fishing rod. Um, anyway, so he, uh, and he had a rugby tourer for a while. Um, it was called the X-Ray Rugby because they had no windows and, or side curtains. But they lived around the um, road from the Repat Hospital. So they used to go and filch old X-rays and, uh, and then sta- staple them a- around. So you'd be driving through the suburbs of Riverside, suburbs of Perth, looking through somebody's dodgy lung, you know. <laughs> So I always loved I always loved all these stories about you know this mad sort of you know kind of transport. And then he goes out and buys a 1954 Hillman Minx in in, in glorious cardigan grey, um, <laughs> and it was like a it was like driving in a slow combustion stove. It was that aerodynamic, you know. Anyway, don't start me on that. But uh, and you, you could so never that, get rid of it. No, no. Just so anyway, old pop decided. Once he finally... He was the worst driver. Jeez. He was like Mr Magoo, you know. Um, and when he finally gave up driving, or driving gave him up, I think, really, um, he decided in his great munificence to, uh, to hand on the, the, the car to us. Um, and that's the means by which we became a two-car family. So we had a proper car, a real car, a Falcon, you know. And we had, but Dad, any opportunity Dad could to humiliate us by taking us in the minx... Um, <laughs> dropping us off to school, you know. It wasn't just that he wanted to kiss goodbye at the, ga- at the gate. I mean, he'd be in his full uniform, you know. Um, he was a policeman. He was a copper, yeah. And uh, so he'd pull up outside, high, you know, high school. Um, <laughs> and, it, you know, we'd pull up in this, you know, excrescence of a vehicle and, uh, and he'd have to lean over and give the old man a kiss, you know. But I learned the art of kissing at very low altitude. <laughs> so... I could just, I haven't got, I haven't, I haven't got the spine for it now. I haven't quite, I'm just not flexible enough to kiss that low n- anymore. But so he'd humiliate us, and, he, and um, oh, geez, I hated that car. But uh, anyway, stop me. It, it ended up in a paddock, I think, from memory. But yeah, you start, we couldn't you, get rid of it. You start to see where the eccentric characters in the novels come from, because this is Tim's life. This is not some story. This is this is you. This is your family. How did your family and your friends um, react to your novels? I didn't understand how truthful the novels were to so many of um, your family members until I read this book, and I thought, oh, my God, there must have been a few people a bit cranky with you at times. I borrowed some things here and there. Um, some things? Yeah. There was a... When Clouds, before Cloud Street came out, there was a little family petition... Trying to, uh, trying to gag it, yeah. <laughs> from and, your grandma, uh, from your grandmother, no doubt, who lived no, in a no, tent. No, 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 no. See, this is the thing. There, we, you know, we had all these really interesting people in our family, and then there was a generational change where um, people had gone from, you know, being where eccentric was normal, um, mm. um, and then they got all anxious and ashamed and embarrassed. So the fact that their mother had lived in a tent in the backyard of inner city Perth for 30 years, um, that's a fact of their life. And they would talk about it all the time. But as soon as um, I was going to fictionalise it and, and write, write about it to the rest of the world, suddenly they all got ashamed <laughs> and angry. You know, not all of them, just a couple of the more paranoid uncles and aunties. Surprised they didn't hit you with the libel suit or something. So I'd, I'd be, you know, because I wrote the book in Paris and Ireland and Greece and uh, I got home having finished the book, and um, uh, the old man pulled me aside one day, said, oh, it's a little bit of a, when we had a blue, it was called a bubble, there's a bit of a bubble uh, <laughs> about the book, but don't worry about it, I've got it sorted. Uh, <laughs> Dad's idea of sorting things was just to apply passive aggress- aggression to everything, just by not doing anything. And uh, So, no, it, but mostly I think... Um, your father the, the, probably really the biggest, the strongest responses I've had um, are people who, who are imagining themselves in, into a book and they're not there at all. I've never heard of them. Yeah, right. um, <laughs> Everyone wants a piece of you now. I don't know. I think it's nice if we're going to you know, increase people's imagin- imaginative life, but uh, I don't want them angry about it. Oh, right. well, it's, well, it's interesting that it's your father who uh, you know, looked after the bubble, fixed it, because it seems like he had the most to hold you accountable for. You, he pops up in one way or another in pretty much every one of your novels. And it's interesting to me as a writer's device that you know, in a book there's always got to be drama. In a story there has to be a drama, otherwise it isn't a story. Mm. It's just a photograph, isn't it, really? Yeah. A, a, a verbal photograph. It seems to me that your stories revolve around the prang. There's always a prang, right? Mm. And, again, I didn't realise that your own story, your personal story, revolves 
around a prang. The prang was pivotal in mm. your growing up. Yeah, no, that's that's true. I mean, I I, um, I realised probably just before the reviewers that there was this pattern in my work. Um, I, I couldn't say it as uh, interestingly or as with the air of disappointment that that they would uh, deploy to uh, to point it out to the general public, but you know that there were there were always these sudden collisions and turnings and and often quite literally you know prangs. Um, and, I, and I'm sort of and I'm interested in the way that. Um, we've developed this uh, mindset where we think that we control reality, um, and but, but we are, you know, at this moment in history, you know, th in the rare position of being able to control more of our environment than any people before us. Um, the mistake we're making is that we think that uh, uh, we control all of it, um, and that we're not at the mercy of it. Um, but having said that. Uh, I was, I'm interested in the way that, you know, despite all our preparations uh, and our insurance and whatever else, you still get T-boned by, by life. So, you know, unexpected things happen to you all the time. Um, and and I guess the orig origins of that are simply in, you know, road trauma. When we were, we were a family who were quite literally in accidents. Um, when we go to the police picnic at Christmas time, um, I... It's funny remembering this, but we all kind of organised ourselves um, tribally or institutionally. Um, you'd show up and everywhere, all the families would be there on their blankets, but those families over there, they're in vice. And these families over here, they're in liquor, liquor and gaming. Uh, and we were in accidents. Uh, I mean, there was the general traffic uh, mob, you know, traffic, you know, would be that subset, but that's it. But it's a, there was a subset of traffic that were accidents and they were... They were the, they were the, <laughs> it was really weird. So, oh yeah, when you look in your ice cream, um, where are you again? Oh yeah, we're in accidents, you know. <laughs> so, you know, um, when you'd climb up on Santa's, Santa's knee and he'd, he'd, he'd be a, a detective with, a, with an outfit on and he smelled of whiskey. Now, what do you want for your, you know, what do you want for Christmas, little boy? I want a BSA like my dad, you know. Because um, the old man was a traffic cop, he rode, he rode a, a Beezer. And um, his job was to literally, you know, be the first one at a prang and um, to, to be there to help pick up the pieces. And, um, but it, you know, so that was a kind of a, a work culture and we absorbed all of that sort of stuff. But then suddenly we, you know, we were, um, he and we were in the script, literally. You know, when Dad went to work one day. I mean, you know, when, when my dad went to work, it was... When you were five, it was pretty impressive. You know, he'd get it, he'd have his leathers on, his gaiters, his gauntlets, um, his his aviators, and he'd creak out like a Teutonic <laughs> knight, throw his leg over the beezer, <laughs> kick it into life, um, pull the kickstand out, give it a bit of a fang in the driveway, <laughs> under the aluminium carport, you know, <laughs> and just beef it out. You know, and, and our hearts would swell with pride. You know, there goes our dad. The, the, the warrior prince, you know, um, and one day he didn't come home and he'd, um, he'd been knocked off his bike by a drunk driver and um, was put up against a factory wall and um, he was terribly injured and I some, think some, somebody saved his life at the, on the road by um, giving him a, an emergency tracheotomy. Somebody later said it was with a hollow biro, but I think that was for my benefit, but uh, to... To make it sound like destiny, but um, no, he was he, he was suffocating because his his uh, chest was crushed, and um, so then you know suddenly our life was completely different. Um, we wait, we you know he didn't come home for a long long time, and um, I, I just got to the point where uh, I, I thought that all the adults were just they just lacked the guts to tell us that uh, dad was dead, you know. He was in a coma for a long time. Then he was in. When he finally did recover, we weren't allowed to, see, you know, weren't allowed to see him. Um, and when they brought him home, he was a sort of an effigy of my father. Um, I can. He'd lost a lot of weight. He was, you know, his injuries were, were pretty severe. But the most vivid thing I remember is they, they plonked him down in the in the lounge room in this big white chair that arrived, and some of his colleagues and. Um, came around, and I, I didn't, I didn't know it was my father. I, know, I knew I was, there was a sort of build-up, and then they bring this scarecrow in, um, 
And they're all saying, oh, you know, they're all trying to be jolly and cheer cheerful. And Johnny, you're looking great. You know, John, John, John. And I was trying to take their cue the way you do when you're a kid and just trying to believe. And here's this person breathing through his neck and, the, and there was this uh, big plaster and it was like a spinnaker. It would puff out, it would go in, it would whistle as well, puff out because it hadn't quite grown back over. But, um, my, you know, can you imagine my, my mum, she's got a five-year-old boy, a three-year-old boy and a six-month-old girl, a uh, six-month-old girl on a on a hip and um, the terms of her life were completely redrawn, you know. So that, yeah, that was a... And there was a, you know, there was this one in a series of, um, uh, you know, violent interventions uh, in, into our life that probably, you know, shaped uh, us as a family, and they, I think, they shaped my character. And I certainly shaped your writing. I yeah, mean, at least I, one I, of your novels is almost a complete mm. uh, autobiographical telling of this story. But mm. there's that point at your life when you were at university, where another prang intervened, and the way you tell it, pushed you without reservation into words, without looking back. Mm. And that's a pivotal moment because it's brought you here in front of all of us today. So can you just describe that for us? Yeah, I mean, I... Um, unsurprisingly, uh, as, a, as a little boy, I was a bit phobic about hospitals. Um, I, mean, I, I knew that hospitals were... Early on, I thought, you know, hospitals were sort of factories of miracles. That's where they brought babies from, you know. Um... But uh, I, I hated visiting hospitals because Dad had to keep having um, uh, surgeries after, after uh, you know. I remember going to visit him once years later when he had a bone graft. And I don't know if you remember what an orthopaedic ward was like in the 1960s, but uh, it was like a charnel house. And I was just, I couldn't, I'd go into this sort of tunnel vision of hysteria um, pressing against my mum's leg. It was like the longest walk of my life. Anyway, I won't bore you with that one. But uh, So I didn't like going into hospitals and I, I just would get weird about it. And then one day I woke up and I was in one. I, um, I'd, gone, I'd been to an 18th birthday party. This is all, we, this is all you get in Australia in, by way of rites of passage. Everyone else is this kind of elaborate cultural rituals of you know, working your way up to manhood. We have... The 18th, we go out and get pissed, you know. And I went to it very late, so I didn't even get a chance to get drunk. Um, I think the keg was mostly warm foam by the time I got there. Um, but someone gave me a lift home, and, and that's all I... That, that I don't remember anything else. But we... Uh, somehow, this boy put his valiant through the front wall of a, an Anglican girls' school. So it was our little blow in class warfare. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and the only thing that has stopped us, this is like a, this is like a classic Australian cliche. The only thing that stopped us from going through the caretaker's house and into the into the the, the inner sanctum of girlhood you know, on the other side um, was the the concrete base of the hill's hoist. Uh, <laughs> I'm told. Anyway, I woke up in hospital. Um, and I wasn't the same person that I that I was the, you know, the day before. I um I had this plan that I was I knew that writing was a duck gig. I, I, you know the the common sense view, you know the adult view, the the, the wisdom on the street was that you weren't ever going to make any money out of writing. And I thought, well, that's fine. You know, I'll take it as a vocation. I'll write my O-ring out, and then to finance that, I'll um. I'll just do physical work, you know. I'm a strong lad. I'll work as a brickies labourer or I'll work on the deck of a cray boat. Um, but after my prang, um, two hours chucking pots around on a, on a cray boat or, you know, a, a morning uh, heaving bricks around a building site would have put me in bed for a fortnight, you know. Um, so I had no plan B. And I thought, well, you know, you've been telling yourself you're a writer since you're 10. Um, time to shit or get off the pot. Sorry to be uh, um, <laughs> eloquent about it, but uh, it was that, you know, I was 18, you know. Um, I was much less civilised than I am now. Um, uh, and I, it was like, stop being a pretender, you know. I had, I had to either, in my, mind, in my own mind, 
go ahead and be a writer and give it everything and not and not um, deviate in any way um, or take the king's shilling and do what your mum wants you to do and go to teachers college and be a primary school teacher um, you know because my parents had never finished school um, the fact that we got through high school and then got into university I mean it was a sort of miraculous thing and then to have your oldest child say um, hey mum I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna be an artist I'm gonna I'm gonna write books um, just it must have been bewildering yeah, for well, them you know look there, there's your working class ethic though here you are yeah well I, I did have a workman like uh, you know, tradies kind of approach to it but um, without the FM radio um, but with quite a bit of plumber's crack in the day. But, uh, um, but no, I just, I, just went, I just went hard. And I think it was, it was, the, there was, a, it was a kind of a theme in my life where um, I, I was spared the panoply of choices that paralyzes most of us. In, our, in the life that we're leading at this end of, the, of, of, of civilization, um, many of us paralyzed by... A surfeit of choices there's just so many things whether you're at the restaurant and you're trying to figure out which freaking salad dressing you're supposed to choose from or all of that or just the, your life choices um, um, there is a kind of a mercy sometimes even if it's applied violently as it often was in my life of limitations being imposed upon you that then liberated you from um, lots of other choices so it was another form of tunnel vision for me I just I was propelled into 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 writing some of it just um out of bucking myself up out of um self-pity um some of it out of gratitude that i was alive um and uh so yeah i went on and you know i in the next two or three years i wrote the better part of three books i you know i yeah i think i wrote three books as an undergraduate or in, at least as a and I wrote 10 books in my 20s which is an extraordinary extraordinary level of productivity and well and yeah I, mean, I, I, I used to hate writer. it when people said that but now I look back and I think well yeah uh, that was that was it used to irritate me when I was um in fact it was here the first time somebody I, ca I came here in the early 80s not in this, not in this venerable room but in a at some writers festival and um somebody introduced me as a it, it has to be in a foreign language, of course. You either have to be the Wunderkind or the, uh, the, the Enfant Terrible, um, <laughs> which is all just really exotic ways of saying that you're a freaking weirdo. <laughs> uh, um, but, you know, you've got to ponce it up with, uh, with someone else's language. And it used to really irritate me because I didn't feel that weird. I didn't feel abnormal. Um, I was just working hard, like as, as I thought other people worked hard. But then we're not... And also, I was going, having to go to these festivals, and my colleagues and peers in in high end literature, as we saw it, um, were all my grandparents' age. Um, so I was generationally displaced, shall we say? Um, so you know, and they were at the normal age of production. Um, so looking back in middle age, I have to concede that they were right. I was a weirdo, or a bit uh, of a shit, or something. Yeah, it, it was. I was I was odd, you know. I was the wrong age to be, you know, having the backlist that I had. It was odd. Well, lest everybody think that this book is um, only about Tim and his um, his uh, internal musings, which of course is a lot of that, and it's pretty pretty interesting. I think it's quite an eye opener in some ways. There's also Talk quite about a bit in your own X-rays. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's quite a bit in here too about um, about your external thoughts, and you've just brought that up thinking about where we're going as a world and uh, and you're well known for your environmentalism. I think um, people are well accustomed to to knowing the good fight that you've put in for Ningaloo and that is very much worth a read. But there's a, there's some other interesting sections in here including a, uh, a section on faith which for people who are interested is um, again very interesting because it's quite an Australian journey that you've taken. But you also bring up what has become the C word in Australia, the C word that we never say and that's class. And I wonder if you might sure. read us a little out of that chapter. All right, if I can find it. Please. Tim, we staying, staying in all these... Um, uh, you'll get a chance to answer questions, uh, ask questions at the end too. So and I'll get a chance to evade them, so... Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it works for all of us. 
Um, it's funny the thing you stay in all these hotels and you pick up bits of paper and uh, and uh, the odd receipt and I uh, think I didn't buy that. Uh, <laughs> Using for bookmarks anyway. I won't read very long, I promise. During an interview uh, in 2013, a journalist pulled me up for using the C word. Class? She asked with a lifted eyebrow. What do you mean? I found myself chewing the air a moment. Had I said something foul? Something embarrassing to both of us? In discussing two of my fictional characters in terms of the social distinctions that separated them, it seemed that I'd broached a topic that wasn't merely awkward, it was provocative. There was a little charge in the atmosphere. I tried not to put it down to the fact that I was talking to an employee of News Corp. <laughs> the reporter in question was a person of independent mind whose work I admire, but she was, after all, in the employ of Rupert Murdoch, whose editors and columnists maintain a palace watch on what they like to call the politics of envy. A blur of competing thoughts went through my mind. Was she being ironic? Or did she really expect me to defend a casual reference to class relations? Was I being paranoid or was this the kind of clarification necessary in the new cultural dispensation? Did the nation's drift to the right mean that we all needed to be a lot more careful about our public language lest we expose ourselves to the charges of insufficient revolutionary zeal? Uh, maybe I'll just... Uh, should I read another paragraph? And, or was that... Oh, bossy. After a mortifying beat or two, I made a clumsy attempt to explain myself and soon saw that whatever the journalist's own thoughts were on the matters of class, the fact that she'd challenged me on my use of the word meant that she'd somehow done her duty. To whom she'd fulfilled this implicit obligation wasn't immediately clear. Beyond my initial twinge of anxiety... I didn't seriously think that she had a proprietor or even a, an editor in mind when she balked at the offending word. Afterwards, I came to the conclusion that a Fairfax journal or a Radio National presenter might well have posed the same question from a similar felt sense of obligation. In itself, it was, of course, no big thing. It just caught me unawares. All the same, it was a signal of the way in which something fundamental has changed in our culture. In calling me out over my use of the C word, the interviewer was merely reflecting the zeitgeist. I should have anticipated it. I'd be making assumptions about our common outlook that are plainly, plainly outdated. And later in the essay, I talk about just having said something like that. Sometimes you feel like you've taken a poo in the municipal pool, you know. Um, <laughs> This, to me, was the most surprising of all of the things that you had in the book because I thought to myself, well, number one, when did we as Australians ever become afraid of the word class? Uh, clearly, I don't work for Radio National. I work for Triple Six. It's a different, different beast, right? But, um, but also... Um, I hope it's underfunded, is it? <laughs> all the time. You have no idea. Any, anybody, donations, you know, at the door on the way out, half for Tim, half for me, we'll split it. <laughs> but um, it, to me, it's interesting because... Your, your novels read to me um, as being completely imbued with class, with, with, the, with the interest that comes with that, who you are in society, what your position is. That's where so much of the tension and the interest comes from. Why do you think we suddenly don't want to acknowledge that in Australia? I think it's... Um, you know, we've had a generation of, of this kind of experiment from... Uh, where we, we stopped thinking of ourselves as a, as a society and started thinking of ourselves as an economy. Um, and that, you know, that's, we've, we've had long enough of that now to see how it goes. Um, and I don't know, I'd, I'm not a specialist, but uh, by and large it's looking like it's not working that well. Mm. Um, but it seems to have come through every level of what we do. Like yeah. we, don't, we don't talk about what you do anymore as a craft, which it is. Mm. Writing is a craft. Radio is a craft. Mm. These things... And to have a craft once upon a time was a, an honourable thing. But now, craft is like another C word, a dirty word. It's a profession. Mm. It's, um, it's a calling. It's goodness knows what it is. That You've twisting. either got to monetise it or romanticise it. That's, that's, it. That's, that's what it is. And, um, 
Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really, it's a really odd thing because I've been travelling this week and me- meeting people. You know, well, mostly they're in the dark. I can see you people. Um, well, it hasn't helped much, but it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's nice to know that you're actually there. But, uh, but, but you know, meeting strangers in the dark, and they ask you, um, we, you know, given that you came from, you know, barely better than white trash, uh, working class, um, suburban, uh, coastal Perth, um, and your parents never finished school, um, how did how do you end up being a you know a literary writer with pretensions to to um, uh, Art, you know, how, how, how did you get here? And I, I, there's a pretty simple answer. It's called taxation. Um, you know, the, the, the Australia that I grew up in, people were uh, used to paying tax, uh, and they were used to expecting that the tax that they paid, which was much higher by uh, our current standards, was going to go to fundamental things. And I'm the product of a state school system, properly funded. Um, my sister runs the uh, education system in Western Australia and she went to the same school as me. Um, and I think we we forget the cost at which we've become the sleek um, uh, sado-monetarist, sado as uh, um, Bob Ellis used to say, um, modern version of our former selves. We've been trained to pay less tax pay less taxation, resent the tax that we pay um, more than we ever did, um, and uh, to see our public institutions pillaged, um, emaciated and traduced. And um, so schooling, health, you know, all the fundamental things. Um, and, we've, you know, we've sold this idea of a, of a, of a trickle-down economy. The only thing that trickles down in truth is trouble. But the great news is there's money in trouble. Because there's money in locking people up who who, who fall foul of, of the law because they're poor and they're marginalised um, and they're from violent backgrounds and whatever. There's money in that. There's money in locking people up behind barbed wire, whether we offshore them or we onshore them. Um, if if people think that's working, um, go team. But, uh, but so is, is there but a danger? About, that, we don't talk about class. <laughs> We don't talk about class because um, it's supposed to be no longer an argument. We've taken that out of the equation. Um, you know, we've divided people into these lifters and leaners. You know, and the people who have told us that we're, you know, that we're lifters and leaners are usually the biggest leaners in the country. You know, <laughs> I um, couldn't, I couldn't possibly have an opinion. You know. But this is the wrong town to be saying things like this, isn't it? Sorry. <laughs> it's a, they'll never let him leave. Canada. Blame that breakfast I had at the airport. Is there a danger in the romanticism then of novels like yours? Because as long as we have the beauty and the the the, the romanticism of that life, the simple life, in the novels to read on our shelves at home that we can afford to ignore. You mean me sentimentalising uh, a former life or nostalgia, yeah. or do you mean, or do you mean the romanticising the the. the art business itself. No, no, romanticising that life. And if we have evidence of it continually in our houses that perhaps it's not gone and we can afford to turn a blind eye to the changes that you've just described if we don't happen to like them. Yeah, and I'm not not sentimental about um, my working class origins. There's a lot of things about being working class I don't miss. You know, I mean, I did wake up one day and I was a bourgeois. Um, (laughs) That took a bit of swallowing, but uh, I came to terms, I, you know... um, I don't miss the sort of reflexive tribalism, you know. Um, um, I don't. I don't miss the limitations that were imposed on me that I didn't, you know. But um, and so I don't, you know. I don't, I'm not on any project to sentimentalise um, working class people. I'm just in, interested in all kinds of people. Um, and but it, it's interesting to me that. Um, that people would somehow talk about ordinary people as though they were ordinary. You know, every person is interesting. Every, um, and if people see, you know, ordinary, um, I just don't see ordinary in a, in a negative, a negative, um, negative light. But um, anyway, I won't keep banging on about that. Well, one last question then, because I'm sure that there are people here who are 
dying to ask you questions as well. Or just dying to go home. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I doubt it very much. <laughs> Coming to do this, I had the, the privilege then of being able to revisit your books. I made myself, you know, you go back and you reread them and you think, you know, I, because I just want to re-familiarise myself with the work. But Which is a really nice way to have to swat up a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. De- dead set, because I didn't pay enough attention the first time around, you know. What I was did it find out if you had a dog first, just in case you said that the dog ate your homework, but um, sorry. <laughs> no, just a husband. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, but I know that your broadbeans are under attack. They are. Yeah. Earwigs, you know, Canberra, earwigs, broadbeans, yeah. Things you right. find out backstage, yeah. <laughs> Can't say I don't do my homework. I, I also found out about the things that Tim doesn't have, and one of them is food. The other one I won't tell you. Um, <laughs> when he's on tour, the um, the thing that struck me about those beautiful, beautiful books is that um, when I read them, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, they, uh, the subject matter was a lot closer to the life that we lived. And now, those some of those books, like Cloud Street, seems to me that you could hand that to a new generation of people who for whom it could be incomprehensible. How, how do we connect that Australia to the Australia that we have today? Is that a writer's job? Can you do that? Uh, no, I think it's a, that's a historian's job, I suspect. Um, but, you know, all idea, all, most ideas um, evaporate into the ether unless they have a beast of burden to carry them, and that's story. Um, whether, whether you're talking about philosophy or theology, um, um, ideas about sociology, the only way you can test those ideas and bring them to life for other people is to, um, you know, saddle them up <coughs> with story. And um, so, you know, I, I, my hope is that our historians and um, um, uh, keep telling our story and, and keep... Um, keep us from forgetting, you know. And, you know, art is, is a part of that project of, of remembering, but I don't think it's necessarily central. I, I think art doesn't need an excuse to exist. It, it doesn't need any utilitarian um, purpose. I think, you know, if something I've learnt from, from the trades class that, I've, that I came from uh, is that um, art is one thing, you know, I'm in the business of creating useless beauty. Uh, and I'm... I don't shy away from that. Um, as a citizen, I feel obliged to uh, to, d- to do useful things, but that doesn't seem to—I don't feel that's my role as a as a writer. But I hope that we continue to tell each other stories and um, and to to sort of uh, chip away at the kind of ossification of forgetting that we um, sometimes fall into. Mm. Thank you. No worries. Enough from me, but a little more from Tim if we could.